So last Sunday, we looked at what I refer to as the tip of the iceberg. Jesus pulled the curtain back a bit to reveal who he was when he saw Nathanael under the fig tree. And if you remember, Nathanael was amazed by this, to which Jesus responded, you will see greater things than these. If you remember, Jesus was kind of like, yeah, you're impressed with that? You have no idea what's coming. If you remember, we learned that the greater things, they worked on two different levels. First, he was clearly referring to the signs and miracles that he would perform throughout the course of his ministry. But second, and more importantly, he was also pointing to the thing beyond the signs and miracles, namely his crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. And so as we move into this second chapter, Jesus starts to pull the curtain back even further. And he's giving the disciples front row seats to some of those greater things, some of which they would not come to understand until after Jesus was raised from the dead. So if you have your Bibles, and I do recommend you having your Bibles as we continue through this series, open up with me to John chapter 2. And as you're making your way there, I want to quickly situate us. Jesus has been on the scene now for seven days, a week which began back in chapter 1, verse 19. He has moved around a bit from Bethany beyond the Jordan to Galilee, and he will eventually make his way up to Jerusalem. And so let's take a look at our text. We are in chapter 2. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, most of the sons in the room are trembling. Like, yeah, you just, that's what you said to your mom? Okay. Couple things, right? The first thing that stands out is the phrase, on the third day. Now, let me ask you, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase, on the third day? Resurrection. Ding, ding, ding. Everyone got the answer right. Yes. For anyone who has been around the Bible for any length of time, the resurrection of Jesus comes to mind immediately. But also, and this is kind of cool, if we do the math, and Scott loves math, it means that Jesus' first miracle, this whole water into wine event, takes place on the seventh day, which is what? Sabbath. Yeah, I think a couple of you got it. I heard a little, but I heard Sabbath in there as well. So John is giving us a chronology, but he's also digging below the surface, calling to mind, one, the resurrection, and two, the creation week of Genesis. In other words, there appears to be some rumblings of new creation embedded here in the text. The text says that Jesus, his mother, and his disciples were there, which means they were probably close to either the bride or the groom. And as we'll see in a minute, most likely the groom. And also, Jesus went to weddings. Right, right there is just something that we need to just pause for a second and, and let that kind of settle. A regular, ordinary event that regular, ordinary people attend. Jesus was there. Right? Again, Jesus is, is incarnated. He is human. He does human things. But also, weddings are, are very symbolic throughout Scripture of God's new creation. So, so right, even if I'm just going to press pause for a second, 
This is why people read the Gospel of John over and over and over again. Because I just uncovered like six or seven different things that we can have an entire sermon series on each one individually. That's what's so wonderful about John's Gospel. Is that he is getting so into like the depths of our, of our faith. And so, so, yeah, this is a book that people read over and over and over again because there's so much there. The text then says that the wine ran out, and, and as we see, Mary was concerned, which means she's probably close to the situation. If she was just some random guest, she wouldn't have been all that concerned that the wine ran out, but, but she is concerned because she probably knows the people throwing the party, people throwing the wedding. But what's the big deal? The wine ran out. Why does this matter? Why is she so concerned, right? I've, I've ran out of things before. Uh, to be fair, if we run out of things when I'm hosting people, I get very overwhelmed by that. Like, I'm just like, well, there's not enough food. Um, but that's neither here nor there. What is the actual big deal? One commentator notes that in the culture, which was an honor-shame culture, to run out of wine or supplies would be a dreadful embarrassment is the language he uses. And there's some historical evidence that this sort of scenario could lead to a lawsuit against the groom. So this was a big deal. This was a big deal. To run out of wine, you're going to get sued for that. That's just what the Bible said. I don't know. Tell me. Mary tells Jesus they have no wine. And it's Jesus' response that's somewhat jarring. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Like, why are you telling me, Mom? But he doesn't say, Mom. He says, woman, keep that file away for a second. My hour has not yet come. Now, first thing, this entire scene is shrouded in mystery. We don't fully grasp what's going on here. But there are some clues that can help us understand a little bit what's happening. Jesus' response, though not disrespectful, it is a rebuke. It is a rebuke. Right? He is, in fact, rebuking his mother day. Uh, his, 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 sorry, his, his mother. A modern day equivalent might be something like ma'am, but Jesus is absolutely putting his mother in her place. That's happening. And if that makes us feel uncomfortable, I don't know what to tell you. That's what's happening in the text. But also notices that he uses this term woman during this week of new creation that John is unfolding here for us. There are echoes of Genesis all over the place. Do we hear an echo from Genesis chapter 3 when that word woman pops on the scene? When Adam says to God, it was the woman you gave me that caused this event to take place. Now, the hour that Jesus refers to is probably a veiled reference to his crucifixion. That's typically how this phrase is used in John's gospel. And what John is doing by bringing out this part of the story is that he's grabbing our attention right from the start so that now as we read through the book of John, we're looking everywhere for this hour. But notice Mary's response. After the rebuke, she looks to the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. What in the world is going on here? What's happening? Because if, if Mary was truly rebuked in this situation, at first glance, it kind of feels like she's ignoring her son's rebuke. But that's not what's happening. See, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother, and right in that moment, she realizes that he is her Lord. 
Because notice what she says. She doesn't say, Jesus is going to take care of it. She says, do whatever he tells you. She is submitting herself to Jesus and saying, I'm out. I'm giving this over to my son. He's going to handle this. See, Mary Mary transitions from mother to disciple while Jesus transitions from son to Lord right here in this text. That's what's going on here. D.A. Carson argues that in verse 5, Mary responds as a believer with persevering faith. With persevering faith, and that faith is honored. That faith is honored. Text continues, verse 6 and following, the miracle. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But but you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Notice that these jars, what were they used for? For the Jewish rites of purification. Bless you. Also notice that they held 20 or 30 gallons. Now, depending on who you read, we could be looking at something like 150 American gallons or 50 American gallons. Either way, they held a lot of water. That's the point that we need to kind of draw from this. And Jesus speaks, and, he, and they fill them up to the brink, and they bring, they bring the wine to the master of the feast. Now, who's the master of the feast? This is the guy running the party. Maybe this is the DJ at a wedding, right? This is that kind of, to get that into your brain a little bit. And then notice what he says. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. You see, what is unfolding here in Jesus' first sign is a picture of what is taking place and what will take place at a cosmic level. The disciples at this point are starting to understand. The text says that they believed in him, or more literally, believed into him. In other words, the events of chapter 1 and this sign are events that are deepening their faith. It's deepening their faith. At a granular level, to believe into Christ is another way of saying to cultivate and deepen our communion with God. They already believed in chapter 1, so they're not getting saved again. But each moment on the road with Christ strengthens their belief and conviction of who he is. And so too with us. The longer we walk with Christ, the more convinced we are of who he is. Why? Because he meets with us. He draws us near to him. We experience a deepening of our relationship with Christ the longer we walk with him and the more we cultivate that relationship, right? It's not a passive thing that we engage in, this walk with Jesus. No, part of this walk with Jesus involves a participatory sort of, sort of posture, not sort of posture, a participatory posture that we take with our Lord and with our Savior. The more we cultivate our relationship with Christ, Practicing our faith through spiritual formation and discipline, serving others, walking in faith, the more we deepen our communion with the triune God. We are believing into him, pressing in deeper 
and deeper. But as we zoom out, what we are seeing is the new eclipsing the old. Check this out. Pay attention. At a wedding, which represents new creation throughout the scriptures, on the third day, a hint at the resurrection, which is the seventh day of the story, right? Sabbath, a woman speaks a word to the second Adam. Uh, But this time, instead of imposing her will, she entrusts herself to him. The jars once used under the Jewish law for purification without grapes nor the months of fermentation required now pour forth gallons upon gallons of wine, the best wine. See, Jesus, as, as one pastor notes, is creating something from nothing. The stuff wasn't there to make wine. Stuff wasn't there, but he makes it. Ex nihilo for you theology nerds. And in so doing, He removes the shame that the groom and his family would have endured, and he replaces it with glory. You guys tracking with what's going on here? These are some pretty heavy events that are taking place as this story unfolds. Now, to the disciples and any other Jewish reader of this particular passage, what they are beholding is what the prophet Amos declared, and I have a slide for this. Amos chapter 9, verses 13 through 14. The days when the plowman shall catch up to the reaper and the one who stomps the grapes will overtake the planter and the mountain shall drip sweet wine. The hill shall flow with it. God will restore the fortunes of his people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. This is new creation language. The old is gone, the new has come. That's what's happening here, Redeemer. That's what we're witnessing unfold in this miracle of turning water into wine on the seventh day of the new creation week. Now to the church, from the earliest readers of John's gospel to those of us sitting here this morning, the wine reminds us of the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins so that we might be purified and relieved of our shame through his completed work on the cross. We experience the foretaste of new creation through the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit of God. As Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Redeemer, this is good news. This is good news, and Maggie agrees. This is good news. Our shame is being removed. The blood of Christ cleanses us. We are in the inaugurated kingdom of God. New creation is flooding the scene. As we live this life of faith, we are participating in new creation life. Remember, where are we seated? Paul tells us in Ephesians, we're seated in the heavenly places. There's this already not yet nature to what our faith is that we are already new creations. And I know we don't feel like that all the time. I know that that's not our daily experience, but that is the reality that I want us to hear this morning, that I want us to receive, that your shame has been removed and you truly are new creations in Christ. That's true. That's true. And it's because of what Jesus did, because of the wine of new creation 
That's why we possess this life in Christ. That's good news. That's good news. But see, not everyone thought this was good news. And still not everyone thinks this is good news. And this is often the case when something new arrives on the scene. Some are going to listen to it. Some might even grab hold of it. But most of us, myself included, we don't like change. When I was a kid, my mom, we had this couch and, and we had it for years, and I believe it might have even been in my grandmother's house when, when my mother was growing up, and I loved this couch. I loved this couch. I'm going to share a little bit of my, my insanity with you. Um, my mom bought a new couch, and I was devastated. I'm like, a new couch? What are, what are you, insane? We have a perfectly good couch. And, and she put it at the end of the driveway to be picked up by, by the garbage man. And, and as I was walking home from the bus stop, I saw the couch. And I proceeded to sit on the couch. And just remember all the fond memories I've had on the couch. It's the kind of person I am. I don't like when things change, when things get shaken up. I'm reminded of the words of Bob Dylan when he sang, Come mothers and fathers throughout the land, don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. And then he says, please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand for the times they are a-changing. And that's what's happening in this text. The times are a-changing. And Jesus is basically saying, like, you, you got to get out of the way. You got to get on board. You got to get out of the way. Because I'm coming and there's nothing that's stopping. In the last scene, Jesus very privately began his public ministry. If you, were, if you were paying attention, very few people were aware of the sign he performed. His disciples saw it and the servants saw it. But no one at the wedding knew what was really going on. But this next sign that we're going to look like, that we're going to look at, is extremely public. And it's actually more of a scene than a sign. Verses 13 through 17, let me read. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple... He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples then remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a wild event. You're going to come to understand why this is a wild event. Notice that this takes place as the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So this, coupled with the words from the previous chapter that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, should be hitting us a little bit right now. It should be hitting us a little bit right now. The text then says that the event took place in the temple. Where in the temple? It would have been in the outer courts of the temple, in the court of the Gentiles. So picture the scene. Jesus, the Passover lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. He's heading to the temple to celebrate the day when God delivered his people from the hands of Pharaoh. The day when he delivered his people from the hands of Pharaoh. If we believe that Jesus is God incarnate. And what he finds, instead of worshipers, Instead of brokenness and contrition, instead of the murmuring of prayer, he walks into something like Costco on a Sunday afternoon. That's what we're dealing with. And so in response, when he sees this, he clears everyone out. 
He tells them to not make his father's house a house of trade. Then he quotes Psalm 69, which I would encourage you to read this week. We don't have the time to dig into that right now, but that entire passage really does speak to the person and work of Jesus. What is going on here? Why is he so angry? See, the problem that Jesus encounters when he walks into the temple is twofold. First, the temple was a space where God would meet with his people. It was a place of worship, a place of sacrifice, a place of prayer. Mark's gospel refers to it as a house of prayer for all the nations. So the issue wasn't with the selling of animal sacrifices or the money exchange. That's not a problem. That's actually a need that the people had. The problem was where it was taking place. It was all about location. Desperate people making pilgrimages to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire with the hope of meeting with God were met with a barrier of chaos. I've never tried to pray in Costco. Maybe you have. But even trying to have a conversation on the phone is difficult when it's busy or any store for that matter, that is overwhelming. I say that because I'm kind of lying, I don't really go to Costco. But that's what popped into my head. The worship of God's people had become cheap and convenient. The holy place of the temple and the old ways had become corrupt, and they had to go. The second thing, the second problem was also a matter of location. The money changers and those who were selling the animals for sacrifice, where'd they set up shop? In the court of the Gentiles. Remember Mark's gospel, the temple was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. The covenant that God made with his people was one that included the blessing of all the nations. But, but not if that blessing means I got to carry my lamb or pigeon from all the way across the street. Not if that blessing gets in the way of my convenience. Not if that blessing gets in the way of, of what's most important to me. I'll bless the nations as long as it doesn't affect me. That's what that move is screaming to a watching world. I'll bless the nations as long as it doesn't get in my way. That's what the people of Israel were doing by setting up shop in the court of the Gentiles. The problem is that Jesus was seeing firsthand that the people who were supposed to be about the work of God, who were supposed to reveal the nature and character of Yahweh to a lost and dying world, were concerned, were concerned only with their own nation, their own need, and their own comfort and convenience. This is not worship. This has ceased to be worship a long time ago because worship is never self-serving. It is always about others. It's always about others. I gotta preach here for a moment. See, the temple was a gift to the people, both to Israel and to the Gentiles. It was the space where both the people of God and the nations could come and meet with God, worship him, pray to him. This was true of the temple and it was also true of Israel. They too were a gift to the world because they were the means by which the world might catch a glimpse of what God was like. But there was so clearly a problem here. There was so clearly a problem. The nations couldn't get to God because all the stuff that was in the way. The, the tables of money changers, the people selling animals, the people buying animals, the animals themselves, all these little conveniences, all these things that made worship easy and accessible for Israel, they became a barrier for the entire world. 
And so what did the Gentiles see? Because Israel still represented God to the nations. The Gentiles simply saw a distorted picture of him. Because what they saw was a people marked by selfishness, nationalistic pride, and disregard for others. And that would become their perception of who God was. There's a message in here for us, Redeemer. Some truths that we need to take very seriously. See, I believe with all of my heart that when it comes to the truth of the gospel, the message, the saving message of Jesus... And, and orthodox Christian doctrine, I believe that evangelicals have the market cornered. I think we do. I think we get the gospel right. But somewhere along the way, while still holding fast to our theology, there were some things that started to rob us of our affections for Christ. I want to say some hard things for a minute, things that may or may not be offensive. Some of the things that have robbed us of our affections for Christ that have gotten in the way of the simple message of the cross are things like our political obsessions. I use that word intentionally because we have become obsessed. I'm not opposed to politics. I think we should be engaged, but to what extent? For some of us, we have merged our love for our country with our love for God. There's nothing wrong with patriotism. But there's something wrong with nationalism, a zeal for our country that outshines our zeal for worship and the love of our neighbors. Maybe it's a cultural or moralistic fight that has captured us. Again, I'm not saying that these things aren't important. But loving and caring for a young woman struggling through a crisis pregnancy is more powerful than yelling and making fun of the opposition. Maybe it's something else that you thought I was going to say when I mentioned that I might be offensive and that could simply be the Holy Spirit tapping you on the shoulder. Now, I know these sort of things happen on both sides of the aisle, but the thing is the kingdom of God is, is not on either side of the aisle, nor is it in the center. It is a completely separate entity. It's neither right nor left nor center. It is an otherworldly politic an otherworldly worldview by which we are to live. And it's a worldview that is shaped by, you know what I'm going to say, the cross, the sacrificial love of King Jesus. You see, the scriptures teach us something. They teach us that we are to be known by our love. That when people think of the church, it's the cross that ought to come to mind. As the Apostle Paul wrote, I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, I have decided to know nothing among you. Nothing among you except this one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul writes in his first letter to the Thessalonians, but we urge you, brothers, to aspire, to make it your ambition, to zealously strive, is what this word means, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we have instructed you. Why? So that you might walk properly. Where? Before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In other words, Paul does not want us to get caught up in the gossip. Paul does not want us to get caught up in the insanity of the world around us, in activism, in fighting for our rights. He wants us to live lives of love, peace, generosity, and sacrifice. 
And in fact, that's what worship is all about. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 through 2, and, 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 and how the book of Romans is set up is that you have chapters basically 1 through 11 that outline the gospel, and then you have chapters 12 and following that says, how do you live in light of the gospel? And he says this, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some of your translations might say, which is your logical worship or rational worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, see worship is, is this thing that encompasses all of who we are. All of who we are. And it's postured toward God and then it's postured toward the world around us. Not that we're worshiping the world around us, but we're serving the world around us. And how are we called to serve? By sacrificial love. And that's basically what the rest of Romans kind of uncovers, is that love of God and neighbor are the crux of this holistic world, this holistic form of worship. Everything else serves as a distraction, as a barrier that prevents outsiders, Gentiles, from getting to the cross. Like I said before, I think we have the theology. And I believe we possess the saving message of the cross. My fear is that outsiders won't be able to find it through all the mess. And that's the sort of thing that causes Jesus to turn over tables. That's the sort of thing that causes Jesus to turn over tables. I'm encouraged by our church because I don't think we've adopted this posture wholesale. I just don't think we have. We're not a very politically driven church, and I'm grateful for that. But I believe we are a church that is marked by love. I do. And, and my encouragement to us is to keep pressing into that, to keep moving ourselves toward that, and, and to recognize when these other things start creeping in and distracting us, when these other things start forming us, when these other things start being what we're known for instead of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because if you remember Paul's words, he determined to know that alone. He wants to look at Redeemer Fellowship and he wants to see the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what he's looking for. The text continues, verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, bro, you just messed up our temple. Like, you, what are you doing? Which is a fair question, right? How in the world, like what in the world gives you the right to do this? Show us. Show us what gives you the right. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to do that in three days? In other words, we've been building this temple for 46 years. You're telling me you can get it done in three days? That's crazy. And you know what? They're kind of right. That's crazy. And to any other person who would say that, that's pure insanity. I have a hole in my, my, my bedroom that, that's been there for a year. I still haven't gotten to it. I'm sure some of you guys have those holes, right? Maybe not. You're probably better than me. I don't know. It's fine. The Jews then said, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, right? It took until the resurrection of Jesus for his disciples to, to understand what in the world he was talking. They probably thought he was crazy too. They're probably sitting there like, Jesus, what are you doing? We had, we had a good thing going here. People were like into it. You did the whole water wine thing. And now you're like, what are you doing? You're making life hard for us. You're making life hard for us. The Jewish leaders were clearly upset. And what they saw, at what they saw, and they demanded a sign. And Jesus' response would have been confusing to anyone. But what we see is that the disciples, after they experienced the resurrection, they understood. And that's true for us as well. Once we come face to face with the resurrected Christ, we get it. We get it. At the same time, we need to keep believing into the resurrected Christ. Because like we talked about a few minutes ago, the distractions are real. And they can rob us of our affections and our purposes. They can rob us of our affections and our purposes. Now, if you've been around Redeemer for any length of time, what Jesus just said shouldn't be a shock, right? Because I've said this on multiple occasions, Jesus is the new temple. That's the point he's making there, which makes this last section of chapter 2 pop in a way that I've never really realized. Look at verses 23 through 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. See, the text says that many believed when they saw the signs, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. This is the exact same word being used here. It could read that many believed when they saw the signs, but Jesus didn't believe them. That's what's happening. Many believed when they saw the signs, but Jesus didn't buy it. Why? Because he knew the hearts of all the people. See, Jesus knew what was in the hearts of the people. He knew that they were there for the magic show. But I suspect that he also knew that any devotion to the old meant that they could never fully embrace the new. Any devotion to the old meant they couldn't embrace the new. See, Jesus wasn't looking to mix and match a modern design with a splash of vintage. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. See, Jesus was tearing the whole thing down. And he is saying, you're either in or you're not. That's what he's saying. There's no a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And see, this is the point of the entire chapter and really the point of the entire gospel of John. New creation means that the old is gone. New creation means that the old is gone. We cannot hold on to our former ways of life, every sin that entangles us, and we cannot entrust ourselves to systems that are upheld by the powers and authorities, even if we decorate them with a cross and a Jesus fish. These things pre prevent us from pressing deeper into the life of God, from believing into Christ, and they also distort and muddy the waters of the saving message of King Jesus. The problem we face is that some of the things that Jesus is calling us to shake off, to set aside, are things that many of our favorite leaders, whether spiritual or political, celebrate and even call righteous. It's easy to talk about the obvious sins. 
Of course we know that if our old life was marked by drunkenness, lust, violence, whatever, that we cannot continue in those areas. That's obvious. But the subtle things, some of the areas we spoke about earlier, the good things that we turn into ultimate things, because that's really the crux of the matter. Good things that we turn into ultimate things. If you've never read Tim Keller's book on idolatry, I would strongly recommend it because he paints this picture beautifully, that our heart is a factory of idols, which he he quotes from John Calvin, and that idolatry is when we make good things ultimate things. Jesus wants to dig all that out of us. Anything that might distract us from the cross-shaped kingdom of God, anything that might cloud someone's vision of the saving message of the cross, it must be torn down. It must be torn down. Just like Jesus did in the temple. While we were away a few weeks ago, we had the opportunity to visit the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, in North Carolina. If you've never been there, I highly recommend it. It's a really beautiful exhibit. What stood out to me as we made our way through the exhibit of his life and ministry was that Billy's life, and and I I feel like I'm on a first-name basis with him now, no matter how close he was to political power, no matter how famous he became, no matter how large his crowds were, he never changed his message. Never changed his message. He preached the cross. That's all he cared about. He wanted people to meet the man who saved him from his sins. That's what he wanted. And that was his focus. And that is my hope here at Redeemer, that that what you hear coming from this pulpit, in conversations at community group, during discipleship course, and in the hallways and lobbies of this building is the message of the cross. That new creation wine would fill this place, that we would be a people marked by the cross-shaped love of Jesus. That we would allow the word of the gospel, adorned with works of love and empowered by the Holy Spirit, to do its work in and through us. In our passage, Jesus speaks about his body as the temple. And if you remember... I've talked about John's use of double meaning throughout the last few weeks. But here we have a triple meaning, which is kind of cool. First, the temple in Jerusalem would have been destroyed already when people were reading this gospel. As the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 and John wrote most likely during the mid-80s. Second, Jesus' death and resurrection was also a past moment in redemptive history that the readers of this gospel would have been meditating on as they read through the words of John. But there's this other piece that John wants us to recognize as we read through the words. There's this, there's this sort of image where John kind of peeks out as he's writing and he's talking directly to us. He's looking us right in the eye. And what does he say? He says in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And guess what? That's us. That's us. Because of the new wine of new creation, the shedding of Christ's blood, our sins have been forgiven, our shame removed, and we are being built up into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. That is who we are as the church, Redeemer Fellowship. Those of us who have been brought into union with Christ, we are the new creation temple. It's us. 
It's us. Our shame has been removed. We have been purified by the blood of Christ. We no longer need the water of purification from those jars anymore because that's been dealt with in the person and work of King Jesus. And so what I want to encourage us is that we would receive that grace. That we receive that grace. And if there's anything obstructing the world's view of the head, which is Christ, anything preventing people from getting to the cross, that we would lay it down. When we say, come and see, we want people to see Jesus. We want people to see Jesus. And if you're here, if you're here and, and you desire that, that relationship with God, if you want your sins to be forgiven, your shame removed, and to walk with your king, I, I want to talk to you after the service. I want to talk to you. Because we can have that in Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the cross, that he died in our place that we don't have to experience the shame. We don't have to experience death. We are new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. Today is the day of salvation and it is the day to continue believing into Christ. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, he says, look, behold, look, I am making all things new. I am making all things new, including each and every one of us. Today is the day of salvation. We have at our fingertips the power of the resurrection in the indwelling spirit of God that is in us. We have forgiveness of sins. Your shame is removed. This is good news, Redeemer. This is good news. And for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, continue believing into him. Press deeper and deeper into this relationship with Christ. Because it just keeps getting better. It really does. It doesn't get easier. Ask anyone who's been doing it for a while. It doesn't get easier. But it gets better as we draw deeper into communion with our King. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for new creation. We thank you with all of our hearts for new creation. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that the shame of our past, anything that we might have done, Lord, that gets removed because of the cleansing blood of your son, Jesus. That we can walk in newness of life. I pray that if there's anyone in this room right now who's struggling with that, who has things coming to mind from their past, things that aren't a part of their story anymore but still feels the shame of it, Lord God, that you would remind them of your gospel. That they are clothed in white, cleansed from all of their past iniquity, Lord God, and all of their present iniquity and all of their future iniquity, Lord God. That is the good news of the gospel. Father, you are mighty to save. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.